0: Everyone, welcome to the Echo Podcast, where we discuss how our hearts and minds can be an echo of God's heart and mind and what that even means in this world. We are Pastor Dan Sinkhorn and Adrian Cerullo from Shiloh Church of Jasper, Indiana. Pastor Dan is Shiloh's main leader and head pastor, and I, Adrian, am the youth leader. Each episode will consist of us talking about different topics and ideals in the Christian faith. We'll wrestle through some things together, and we hope you find our conversation enriching, inspiring, and entertaining. In this week's episode, we'll be talking about wrestling with doubt and faith. So, Pastor Dan, in last week's episode, we talked about the movie The Case for Christ, and that's where Lee Strobel tells uh, the account of his personal wrestlings with Jesus, who he was, is, and whether or not he's the Son of God. We actually watched the first half of the movie in youth group last week, which was amazing. It was so awesome, and I think the kids really loved it. Um, but we saw just how hostile Lee was in the beginning when he he was he was just mad. He was an atheist. He was mad. Um, he was mad at this quote Jesus, right? And the effect that that Jesus was having on his wife. And it was so funny. Lee even accused his wife to her face of cheating on him with Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> it was just hilarious. I'm like, wow. It, he was just he was mad, right? So that illustrates his, like, vast misunderstanding, too, of what Christianity is. Like, you can't cheat on your spouse with Jesus, right? <laughs> but it gave us a good perspective of, like, where he was at that time. Um, there was one scene where actually he goes up to one of his co-workers and he, he legitimately is like, hey, you're into all this God nonsense. And this dude is like, uh, wow, all right, um, yes. <laughs> and so... He says, and this is a quote, he says, so a bunch of Bible thumpers got into Leslie, which is his wife. (laughs) He says, I'm afraid she joined your cult. (laughs) (laughs) And then he talks about how he wants to try to disprove Christianity. So he's mad at God. He's mad at Christianity. He was a doubter, and he was on a mission to tear down Christianity and, honestly, his marriage while he was at it. (laughs) In one of his interviews with a Christian scholar, this guy says, Lee, let me ask you something. Do you really want to know the truth, or is your mind already made up, regardless of the facts? When is enough evidence enough evidence? Hmm. I thought that was really impactful. Yes. So this is a case of extreme doubt, and yet the facts are there. So the movie progresses, and, and we see that our faith is backed by evidence. Mm-hmm. It, it is it is true, right? Right. God is real, the Bible is true, and God's love wins. So there's another person in the Bible who is known for being a doubter. And that is...
1: Doubting Thomas!
0: Thomas! So, you talked about Thomas in this past week's sermon, and I want you to set the stage for me. How do we meet Thomas, and who is this guy?
1: Well, so Thomas is one of the people that Jesus called to be his apostle. Um, There is a difference between an apostle and a disciple. Everybody, including the twelve, can be a disciple, but the apostles were a unique group of people called to a specific mission, so there's that. Thomas was a guy who historically seems to have been a lot like Jesus. He was a kind of a tradesman. You know, we tend to think of Jesus as being a carpenter because his father was a carpenter, his earthly father. But in reality, you know, wouldn't have been able to make much of a living just doing that. He was more likely a general contractor. And uh, that means that he was not that different from the guy you call to come in and and uh, over, uh, overhaul your kitchen for you or do a redo of your house or something, you know. And so he worked with all kinds of tools and, and, uh, and uh, techniques and substances with stone or wood or whatever, leather, you know, whatever they used to get things done in those days. So, so Thomas appears to be a guy like that. And he appears to be a guy who has, um, you know, kind of a real strong middle management tendency. And we get that because the two places where he's mentioned, he's thoroughly pragmatic. You know, he's, he's a guy who says when Jesus wants to go to Bethany to visit his friends, Martha and Lazarus and Mary, uh, well, if you're going to go into Jerusalem's backyard, someone's going to try to get you. So I guess I better go with you. And if we die with you, fine. You know, so he's going to do that because he feels like it's the proper thing to do, but he's also just being pragmatic. And so when we look at him that way, then when we meet him again, where he gets his infamous moniker, we find out that Thomas is a guy who simply wants to be sure, and he's not sure. And who can blame him? I mean, I don't know anybody who's really looked death in the face that would say, oh, well, sure, if you told me three days from now that this person was alive again, I'd believe you. I mean, it, it's, death is very absolute, and it, it's not something that we like to talk about. But Jesus' death was particularly brutal and particularly effective. You know the, What they did to him left no doubt in anyone's mind that he was dead. And the potential for reanimation was not there. You know, um, Jesus was drained of his life's blood, basically, which I only mention because there are people who say that he wasn't really dead and he was revived. And the fact is, the Romans were experts at what they did. And the spear in the side was their way of making certain that he was dead and he was. Mm -hmm. So I don't blame Thomas. Because he said to the guys, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not going to buy it until I see it. And in that way, I think he's a, uh, uh, you know, practical guy. He's just being pragmatic. He's just saying, well, you know, and and sure, he's emotional. You know, so in his emotion, he says, not unless I put my hand in his side and all that. I'll bet he didn't. You know, sounds like as soon as he laid eyes on Jesus, he fell at his feet and said, my Lord and my God, you know, so I don't think he actually had to touch anything, you know, and Jesus, you almost feel sorry for Thomas because Jesus says, go ahead, touch, you know, and, and Thomas is like, "Uh, uh-uh, I, I don't need to do that. So um, that's my take on Thomas.
0: He's almost like the opposite of Lee Strobel in in a way that Lee was faced with evidence after evidence after evidence and he kept hitting all these brick walls and then this dude is like, dude, when is enough evidence enough? Yeah. But but Thomas immediately, one piece of evidence and he said, "Okay, Jesus, you yeah. you are my God." like right away, which is really cool.
1: Yeah, and and I think, you know, it's just a it's maybe I'm maybe I'm just hung up on the idea but I just feel like that the, there was never a question about his faith. That's why I don't like his his uh, undeserved reputation. He never had a lack of faith, other than he doubted that Jesus could be alive again, and I don't blame him for that. I, you know, they did. The other apostles didn't believe it either. It's just that they got us. They got an earlier opportunity to be convinced. So it's not like anybody was expecting to see him alive again because they didn't appear to understand that that's exactly what he meant when he said that he would rise on the third day you know i I don't want to dwell on it because that's not what our topic is but i you know one of the worst parts of growing old is you become more familiar with death Because you start losing the people you love to old age. You start seeing people you love die from diseases and accidents and things. And I'm telling you, once you've seen enough death, you begin to realize, well, no wonder they were surprised, shocked, blown away, even a little incredulous, because, you know, it just doesn't happen.
0: Yeah. And we can only imagine, based on historical account, what they actually did to Jesus And I am so glad that I've never actually seen that done to a human being in my life. I'm sure they had absolutely no question. Yeah. Yeah, he's dead. Like, they did all kinds of things. They were masters at what Mm -hmm. they did. Um, But how unfortunate is it that that we now know Thomas 2,000-some-odd years later still as doubting Thomas based on one time, like, one thing that he said... I would hate to be labeled by one thing I said one time. That'd be terrible. i said some pretty silly things um, in the past. So yeah. I'm glad that we're kind of debunking it and shining a new light on Thomas.
1: I think, you know, uh, but, but as you might remember when we were talking, when I was preaching Sunday, I I said, you know, it's easy to imagine Thomas using that to his advantage, though, because unfortunately we don't have any certain records about most of the apostles lives after the resurrection Um, in other words after scripture we don't know anything about the apostles except what we hear in church legend and lore Um, some of their activities were documented better than others paul obviously and peter and john were people whose record is a little more extensive but thomas he has a lot of sort of anecdotal evidence about him, um, or what we call in the church business non-canonical books and things. Uh, there's a there's a book called the Gospel of Thomas. There's uh, uh, there's another book uh, or or account that describes the ministry of Thomas, and they're not canonical. Canon is a formal word for the accepted. Uh, Uh, sacred writings versus the not accepted for sacred status and it doesn't mean the things in them isn't true it just means that they're not verified and or they don't have a particular relevance to the gospel itself so that being said we do have some things we can assume pretty safely about Thomas and one of them was he did what Jesus told all the 12 to do Get out there and tell them and baptize them. And he did. And there's evidence that he, being the middle manager that he was, was, you know, very systematic about his approach to evangelism. And he, he uh, sent out people on different missions. Okay, you guys go here. You guys go here. You guys go here. And, and there's evidence that he was more of a, a, you know, foreman. Like, you know, okay, here's how we're going to break this down and get it done. And uh, no doubt when he shared his testimony, he shared it like a blue collar working class guy, you know, he said, Hey, I'll tell you guys, I was, I was pretty incredulous. They said he was alive and I just didn't believe it. And I wanted it to be true, but I just would have to see it myself to be sure. So I can understand why some of you are having a hard time accepting this. And all I can say is take my word for it. I saw him. You know, well, this sounds like a guy that people could believe then. Yeah. That's my take on Thomas. I, I think that, if anything, his nickname or his his reputation, it should be celebrated, if anything. You know, it really should. Uh, not that this is a show about defense, you know, the defense of Thomas's reputation, but... More importantly, is we can talk to Christians about what it means to be like Thomas. And that's not bad.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, what I hope I never hear is a Christian saying to another one, you doubting Thomas, that would bother me. Like, Mm. you know, better to say, well, I like how much you're like Thomas because you just want to be sure. But once you're sure, get out of the way. You know what he reminds me of? In my life of ministry, Adrian, I have known a lot of military people. In fact, my whole life I've been around military people. Uh, My teachers, when I was young, were people who are veterans of the wars. And, you know, military has always been prominent in my life, though I never served. And one thing that I can tell you is, is that there's nothing like watching a military person especially a career military person accept christ as their lord and savior because i'm telling you once once they are ready to follow their leader it's absolute like like it's in it's ingrained in the military person's mindset absolute loyalty you know a commitment to the cause a a sense of 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 you know, righteousness about what I'm doing. You know, my, I, my my job is to protect and defend the homeland, you know, and there's, a, there's this real deep loyalty in the mind of a, of a career military person, and there's a sense of, of recognition of authority and and, uh, uh, and dedication to the mission, you know, and that kind of thing. And I've seen military people baptized, and when you say to them, you know, Do you accept Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? You know, you're ready to live your life under his authority. They'll look you right in the eye and say, yes, sir. And you just know that they mean it. Like there's just no question in their mind about it. And I think that's the way I look at Thomas. You know, he's a guy whose yes means yes and his no means no. And there's no ambiguity about it. Love that.
0: He's authentic.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's how I'm going to think about him. Like I said, we all have to guess a little bit about it, but I don't think there was anything wimpy about him at all.
0: Yeah, doesn't sound like it, based on everything that you just said, which I think is totally true. Um, Well, what else? Let's see. Um, So Thomas was practical, right? Mm -hmm. He was authentic. He was relatable. It sounds like he had pretty strong bonds with the community, too, based on, like, his role, I guess.
1: Well, you know, I remember in my life between my first career and my second career of ministry, I worked for a heating and air conditioning contractor. I was an HVAC technician. Hmm. And I went in and out of dozens of people's homes every week. You know, I went through their homes to get to their furnace or their, uh, air conditioning equipment and I worked on it and I met their pets and I saw how they kept their furniture covered in plastic, some of them. And, you know, and, and every house was a different experience. Some of them, some of the experiences were quite exotic. I remember one day walking up a set of stairs in a certain community and, uh, I came up the basement stairs, opened the door just in time to see an old man walking naked down the hall. Oh,
0: no.
1: <laughs> guess Grandpa was living with them at the time, and Grandpa was not used to... Well, you know, anyhow, that happened. <laughs> and then there was another time when I was sitting on my toolbox in the in the house. It was a one-story house, and the furnace was in a closet in in a space between the kitchen and the living area. And I was sitting there on my toolbox working on the furnace, and... And I heard this shuffling sound, and I kept looking around to see what I was hearing. And finally, I looked around behind me, and here was this iguana that's about two feet long, sitting next to me, looking up at me with his tongue going, you know, and and, and I thought, well, do you pet iguanas? I know people keep them for pets. So I reached down, and I touched his head, and he kind of leaned into it. I thought well how about that I guess this is a friendly iguana you know so my point is is that I'm in and out of all these people's homes every week doing this contract type work I imagine that you could say Thomas and people like him were similar plus people were more community oriented in those days anyway because there was so much interdependence You know, um, people didn't have refrigerators, you know, so every day's duties involved either producing or acquiring the things you need to survive and thrive. So people exchanged labor and products in order for everybody to have what they needed in a community. So, you know, and then, of course, they were all part of a religious community. So there was a great sense of community among people i think that's a terrible loss that we've experienced in our modern society and in fact it's a topic for a different discussion but it's one of the things that i'm sure is really hurting our our society right now even right here in our little town it's it's people don't have to depend on each other they don't have to interact with each other and consequently you know, everybody's a stranger, which is, you know, one step removed from a potential enemy.
0: Yeah, we were actually just talking about that in one of our Sunday school classes a couple weeks ago, about how um, we're so opposed to even asking a neighbor for a cup of sugar or something, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. that used to be so commonplace, and we thought about this, and we're like, well, why is that? Why are we that way now? Because, okay, so here's my thought on it. Um, If we say that we need help, that shows weakness. And our society is feeding us this, well, frankly, a lie of like, you must be strong and independent and take care of yourself and all of these things. But there's such beauty in community. Mm -hmm. I know that since I've joined the Shiloh community, my life has become so much richer and so much better. And... I just feel like Shiloh is my family, you know, um, and I was actually reflecting on that when I was working on the discipleship pathway, my faith um, that I was working on earlier today, and it, it really is so impactful to be part of a close community of believers, like it's so important, and that's something that I think our society is slowly losing as well, especially after COVID, yes. um, that isolation. It's almost like we became accustomed to it, and that's just the norm. But it doesn't have to be.
1: You know, you you've prompted me on a couple of things here. Uh, One is that I, uh, uh, how do I go, where do I go with this? I I grew up with a problem. I, I became an adult with a problem that made me feel... A lot of, of inadequacy you know I, I felt like a failure in a lot of ways much of my young adult life and and there's a lot of story behind that that doesn't matter right now but the main thing is is that I struggled for the longest time with the idea that I couldn't ask for help I couldn't depend on another person because that would be another form of failure and Everything changed for me when I became a parent, because for me, that was my moment to either redefine what fatherhood meant or to perpetuate things about fatherhood that I wasn't sure I liked, or to test those things, because I might end up having to apologize to my father after I'd been a dad for a while. You know, there's always that. So so I had this defining moment in my life when I became a dad and, and one of the things I realized was that there were a lot of ways that it took way more courage and inner strength for me to do things that might appear to be weakness and to just admit that you don't know how to do everything. That you don't have the skills or you don't have the equipment to do everything. That, that there's no ruggedly independent person that isn't lonely and incomplete. Mm. Because when I became a pastor, which was the second big defining moment in my adult life, I realized that nothing about a church that I serve would ever get any better than I could make it if I didn't surround myself with people like you who are very talented in ways that I'm not. Mm -hmm. And that it made more sense for me to organize and lead and encourage a team of people like you so that something bigger than myself could happen. And so there was not only courage in admitting I can't do it all, But there was actually admirable sort of uh, qualities about that, that people would look at you and say, what an excellent leader. He builds a great team, and then he makes sure that that team can't fail. And people would see that as an admirable quality. Mm -hmm. And honestly, what you're saying about community is the same. It's like there's nothing weak about a person who says, Together in my community, I can make a greater good, not only for me, but for all of us. Or I can be all about myself, you know, be a prepper, live in the woods by myself somewhere off grid and take care of my family and, and so forth, which, which I understand. But it will take more courage and more interdependence to survive a crisis in a community than it does to just hunker down in your cabin somewhere and wait it out. Mm -hmm. And then when people find out what you've got, an organized group of vigilantes will probably come and try to take it away from you. Because even bad people know that there's strength in numbers and it's better to organize. Yeah. You know, watch Walking Dead for Pete's sake. There it is all (laughs) over the place. That's a gross show. I watched a few seasons of it to find out what the hubbub was about. and Well, I finally just had to give up because I, I'm, I'm not a prude, but there's just too much violence.
0: Yeah. But anyway. My friends in college were into that show. I think I watched a couple episodes. Yeah. Like, no, thank you.
1: Well, I'm not afraid to check yeah. things out just to see what the deal is, but yeah. I'm also not afraid to say, no, that's not for me, you know. But there was something else you said that I'd like you to come back to. Now, you can decide whether you want to go to what you have next on your mind or you can follow this thread. But you mentioned doing the paperwork for a discipleship pathway. Why don't you tell folks about that a little bit? Because I have had this passion for doing what I call a discipleship pathway in every church I've served in my career. And I've never really had uh, a—there's always been a a kind of a— fuzzy place where I have this vision but I don't know how to like get it off the ground and here in the last month or so I've actually gotten my idea of a discipleship pathway to get a little bit of a foothold but it really didn't take off until you kind of challenged our leadership team that you're a part of and sort of put them in a embarrassing situation where they had to do it because you said, "I think we should all do this." Uh, Thank I you.
0: There I go opening my mouth again. Well, <laughs> maybe I, uncomfortable is a better word. Uh, I yeah, don't know.
1: yeah. But, but the basically, I have this vision that everybody in the church ought to be on some sort of a discipleship pathway and. And it's really just a way of saying doing church on purpose instead of just showing up. And, and, and so I have a number of things that I think every Christian should be doing to constantly be in a process of sanctification or spiritual growth. And I created some documents, and I'm looking at your copies right now, and, I, and the documents were my way of helping you evaluate what you needed to do more better to grow yourself spiritually and well you grow with the Lord's help of course. And so you challenged everybody in the leadership team to let me send them these three documents and fill those out and then get back with me on it. Yeah. So talk about that a little bit.
0: So you mentioned a couple weeks ago about this um discipleship pathway that you had and we created a cool like graphic and stuff and um, you said, you know, maybe one or two people had reached out, but it just wasn't, you were kind of struggling to, to get it going. And I think rightfully so, right? I think, like, as people, it's hard to be challenged, right? And, and you know, especially in a spiritual walk, um, it can really open up some, some areas of weakness, kind of like we talked about with our community thing. Like, you don't want to say, oh, I'm weak in, in this area, so I'm going to ask for help. That's something that I'm working on, but it, it's it's hard. It's hard. And so I actually like wasn't planning on talking about this in the podcast, but you know what? It's okay. So I came to your office today to talk about my own um, discipleship pathway assessment. So basically there was three parts to this, right? So there's an assessment, and I'm actually looking at my copies right now. Thankfully I brought them in here with me. <laughs> um, but there's an assessment here, and there's like um, ten different areas of just kind of deep diving into your own relationship with Christ. And, you know, it's funny, if I had been handed this sheet when I was 18 years old and I was in a different denomination, I would have met you with a blank stare. I would have had absolutely relationship, relationship with Jesus. Like, that's how I would have met that. And that's Mm -hmm. question one, right? I've come so far. And so I was so excited to do this. And it was hard, but it was good. So the first part was that discipleship pathway assessment. And, you know, a couple questions is like, um, you know, are there virtues or aspects of your character that you're intentionally working on? How involved are you in ministry? Um, what, what kind of spiritual practices do you use in your life? You know, and then just accurately and honestly reflecting on that how do you envision your ongoing growth influencing those around you those are really good questions and some things that I have really never thought about before and then you had um almost like a can I call it a report card yeah it's kind of like a report card but it's like a self-assessment um so there's six questions Mm -hmm. and it's just saying like rate yourself one to five how well you think you're doing in these six areas um and so that was pretty cool too to really think about you know um how much am i diving into my faith independently versus just in my role as the youth leader and and teaching in that way like how am i doing individually how is my spiritual faith um and, and how much am i seeking more information on an independent basis outside of Sunday worship and all of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you had this one kind of out of, what's the saying, out of right field or out of left field? Is it right field?
1: Let's just say outfield. Outfield. (laughs) (laughs) You know, these days if you go right or left, then people pigeonhole you, you know? So let's just say it came from the outfield. That's
0: true. That's true. (laughs) I like to think in my mind of it as right field because I grew up playing softball. Uh And there was a girl they always put in right field (laughs) because she was always just. In La La Land, yeah, she yeah. would like throw her glove on the ground, face the opposite way from home plate, and like do cartwheels and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that no one really hit the ball out there, because <laughs> she was not paying attention. There's a
1: there's a funny song I remember from my childhood called Right Field, and it's about that person. Really? You know, who's sitting out there making daisy chains and looking <laughs> at the clouds. And yeah, it's pretty funny.
0: Yeah. And we need those people. Yeah. Right? It's the spice of life. <laughs> Absolutely. So this is the third part, which is out of Outfield, we'll go with. And <laughs> it says, what kind of Christian are you? So it's like, okay, well, what kind of, I'm, I am a Christian. I don't know. Right? And so then you read through it and you mention the book of Revelation where there's seven letters written to the seven churches. And each of these churches have different characteristics about them. And so, like, I don't know, pick one.
1: Well, Smyrna is my favorite because it's the one that Jesus was the most tender with of all the seven churches. Ah. And, you know, because basically the letters of Jesus... To those churches in Revelation, were kind of report cards. You know, he says, "This is what I like about what you guys are doing. This is what needs improvement." Okay. Yeah. So that that's sort of Jesus's report card, which I picked up from a guy named Chuck Missler uh, a long time ago, and and uh, I just I like that because we tend to forget that the last words of Jesus in the Bible are actually in the Book of Revelation. Because it's Jesus who is speaking. In some Bibles, his words in Revelation are in red ink because it's Jesus who is speaking. But, and, and what he's describing is both types of Christians and types of churches. And I have found that that is a really effective way to evaluate a church or a Christian. Where do you see yourself in the seven letters of Revelation? Revelation. And uh, it was actually Katrina, our mutual friend, who prompted me to write that third document. Oh, so I only had two, and then she said, "Well, you told me a long time ago when you were doing the Revelation Bible study, because I did the Revelation Bible study. Was it right before COVID or after? I can't remember. It was. It was right after we came back from the I shutdown, or it was right before. But think I think it was
0: dur- during during or during before.
1: well." So it was when we came back from being shut down, but we were we were not fully restored. We were still doing. A lot of people were still watching from home in those days. That's what it was. Yeah,
0: I was one of those people. Yeah, I, I would work out and listen to it.
1: Yeah, that's online, right. That's right. The
0: Bible study. Yeah.
1: Well, I did this whole you know multi-week, I mean many many weeks of Revelation Bible study, and uh, I had said, I could probably guess most people's church affiliation according to the seven letters which is a pretty audacious thing for me to say and probably one of my high moments when I should have been more tethered to reality but I digress I um um I must have said that in a way that prompted her to say so when are you going to tell me which church you think I am Ah. And I said, okay. So I said, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to write up another document and I'm going to invite people to evaluate themselves against Jesus's standard that he set using those seven churches. And and, because honestly, you know, at the end of the day, I don't want anybody to view me as the authority in this process. I'm inviting people to join me in the discipleship pathway And I'm offering them my help as a coach. And so, like, when I expressed disappointment, you know, it was because I was inviting people into a coaching relationship with me. And you being a physical therapist, I know you can understand what I'm talking about. Because, you know, yes, I have expertise or training or whatever you want to call it in certain respects. But more often than not, what most practitioners do is they partner with the person and they say... Let's hear what your goals are. What do you want to accomplish? And then they try to help them reach their goals. And they do it from a therapeutic point of view based on the fact that they have a better understanding of what it takes to get you where you want to be than you do. Otherwise, what do you need them for? Right? right? So in that way, you and I are both practitioners. You practice, you're you practicing. That didn't come out right. Anyway, you practice. You take care of people with their physical needs to improve certain aspects of their physical healing and mobility and things like that and i'm trying to help people develop a stronger healthier spiritual life Mm -hmm. and and i do have the equipment i do have the training i do have the background um i don't have the authority to judge you and i don't suppose you have the authority or the desire to judge your patients
0: no, not you, at all. You
1: just listen to what they want to accomplish and try to help them accomplish it. And And you're you're happy if they become a better version of themselves. It means you help them succeed. Right. Well, that's how I view my relationship with people in the church. As their pastor, I'm offering to be their practitioner to help them to physically and spiritually succeed, In and spiritually in particular. And so... It occurred to me that the most authoritative way to measure someone's spiritual well-being was to use Jesus' own report card. Mm -hmm. So you got my report card that you were just describing, but the ultimate authority is Jesus. And Jesus said to seven churches, this is what I like, this is what I don't like. And he had one church that he loved so much that he said nothing wrong about them at all. He just said, keep up the good work, Smyrna. You're doing great. Oh. Right? And, yes. and all the others, he said, yeah, this is good, but you could do better at that. And so what I'm in trying to encourage people to do as a part of their discipleship pathway, pathway is don't evaluate yourself or, or assume that I have the authority to evaluate your spiritual well-being You can use Jesus' goals and his expectations, and then I'll help you, you know. So I have no desire to be, you know, like I would make a lousy Catholic priest because I don't want to sit and hear anybody's confessions and then absolve them of their sin Mm. because I don't view Mm. myself as that. I know a priest doesn't necessarily have to be proud, but I would be too modest to want to do that doesn't mean anything against priesthood. It's just for me, it would feel so wrong to listen to your sins and then think that I have the authority to absolve them. You know, Christ can absolve your sins. I can only lead you to him. Mm. And that's how I view it. Not against, that's not a slight against Catholics or anything, my point is how I view myself. So naturally when I developed my rubric for coaching people in their discipleship pathway, it had to be a way that didn't serve me or elevate me, because I wanted to partner with people in responding to Christ. And so this is what I came up with, and Katrina gave me the piece that I think was the most important but missing piece at that time, is use Jesus's report card. Yeah,
0: I'm so glad she said that. She's so awesome. I'm not surprised at all. Amen. Great idea. Um, amen
1: we are a team here
0: yeah
1: and i'm surrounded with people who are better at a lot of things than i am and i'm proud of it
0: (laughs) that's awesome um yeah looking at this report card thing perhaps the one that i would like to be least is um now help me out here laodicea
1: laodicea
0: i said it right yes you did well y'all this is what this says the church in laodicea is neither hot nor cold in their faith causing Christ to spew them out of his mouth their challenged to be zealous and repent <laughs> I don't know about you but I don't want to be spewed out of his mouth right and I think that's kind of where we are culturally in a way not necessarily at Shiloh but in the world is like oh well you should be neither hot nor cold you should be in the middle like hear both sides be somewhere in the middle and I think that can bleed into our faith a little bit and maybe more so that we're so busy Mm -hmm. like we're in such a busy society myself included I talk about it in this pathway assessment that I did for myself I'm so busy and it's like you don't make time for the thing that really matters which is faith in Christ
1: yeah yeah
0: I don't want to be spewed
1: out of his mouth. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I there I could well I remember when I did the revelation study, which by the way, listeners, if you're real gluttons for punishment, you can listen to the entire series. You can even watch yours truly. If you go to right now media and you go to Shiloh, uh, the Shiloh channel. Um, You can view the entire series, and um, if you need an invitation to Right Now Media so you can set up an account, you can message us through the podcast, and we'll be glad to help you with that. Um, But um, in that series, I spent an entire hour on each of those letters, so I have a whole hour of just the church at Laodicea. And, and uh, my daughter, Bethany, helped me with these, and, and uh, she helped me develop it and present it. And uh, what she would do is get up, and she would talk a little bit about the historical Laodicea and what it was about. And she will tell you, for example, that Laodicea was a place that was known for its healing waters. And the problem with them was they weren't too hot and they weren't too cold. And and so they weren't good for much, you know, because they were just lukewarm. Mm. Um, and there's more to the story than that. But I thought you'd be interested to know that there literally is a place in Laodicea where lukewarm water flows, and it wasn't particularly... It used to be more therapeutic, and it got worse and worse because of a series of earthquakes. And uh, the whole region of the seven churches, by the way suffered from severe earthquakes and their whole history is since the time that the revelation was written is really remarkable but that's a whole other story the thing about laodicean christians is is that they are first of all the assumption in each of the seven letters is they're written to christians i mean they're written to churches Mm -hmm. church being the word that says part of the body of christ so he's He's not writing to people who are outside of a relationship with Christ. So this is a relationship with Christ that is less than ideal. So I guess what I could say is if you get a report card from Jesus, you're better off than people who don't even show up on his radar, you know, in a a sense, right? Mm -hmm. But Laodicea, gosh, it's a hard thing to summarize, but the the thing that makes him like i have a real i have a large body of experience on this particular topic that informs my comments and you know i had friends when i was going to seminary back in the 90s and and you know my story is is that i was going to school for basically 20 years straight i went to two different seminaries one that was very liberal and and i went there because they told me to and then later on when i was able to choose more my way and and what i thought was better i went to a seminary that was very conservative so I have a very balanced perspective on these things I believe but I had some pretty radical acquaintances in the school that I went to in the 90s and there was this one guy man you know everything was black and white with him everything and he was pretty radical and radically conservative and and every time I would say well I don't know I think I'd like to take my time and process what I've heard and decide, you know, after some critical thinking, where I stand with this particular issue. And he'd just look at me in disgust and say, you're like Laodicea. And I'm just going to spew you out of my mouth, you know. And I just <laughs> I really put a bad taste, pardon the choice of words. It made me feel bad. Because it's like, man, I don't want to hear that phrase ever again. Yeah. Because I heard it used like some sort of battering ram by an idiot. <laughs> okay. God love him. But this, uh, I got some fuzz on my or I've got a lunch on my chair there. Anyway, I'm digressing again. I think I was just stalling because I'm trying to figure out how to say this as succinctly as possible. The thing about being a Christian in the Laodicean tradition is, is that that the alternative is not to be so hot that you scald people and so cold that you freeze them out. like. Like, I think that's what I really dislike about people in church and Christian circles overusing Jesus' words for Laodicea. Mm-hmm. You know, what he wants them to be is effective or, or alive and, 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 and living in the Holy Spirit. And in f- what they're doing is they're showing up every week for church going through the motions and if you ask them 15 minutes after they get home from church what happened at church they don't remember i mean mean, that's what he's really talking about but the but the response is not to radicalize them you know and that's what really bothers me in fact that's in this coming week's sermon i'm talking about the fact that paul was a radical violent opposer of christianity Mm -hmm. you know and and so jesus's words to laodicea are not an invitation to be radically hot or radically cold he's really just saying lukewarm isn't getting you anywhere you know it's dull Mm -hmm. it's lifeless so he would probably say turn up the heat a little bit i think and if if you use the actual laodicean springs as a as a metaphor then the people found the, the healing qualities of the mineral waters far more beneficial when the temperatures were higher, mm-hmm. but not so hot that it cooked you.
0: Right. Yeah. So I just keep coming back to physical therapy. Somebody comes in with a bum knee or whatever, I don't say, hey, let me put some lukewarm water on that for you. Yeah. It's not therapeutic. Right. 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 So hot or cold or whatever is appropriate, but not too hot or too cold to yeah. cause harm yeah damage right and it
1: seems like we have an awful problem in our society these days pick pick your realm doesn't have to be church but that's our context we have an awful problem in our society of people being radically hot or radically cold
0: yeah and
1: it uh, that just shame
0: yeah it's tough it's tough
1: so yeah you don't have to feel bad about jesus i i would say based on on the the deep love and compassion that he expresses to all of the churches maybe the best way to interpret the church in laodicea's letter is to say jesus says with love once upon a time you were far more on fire and excited and now you're just going through the motions i miss you i mean we forget that this is about a relationship with jesus christ and that what he's writing in these letters to the seven churches are are love letters. He's saying to the various churches, he, t- he says to Ephesus, you know, I, I miss the good times we used to have. You know, it's like, well, I can relate. I mean, when you've been married to somebody for over 30 years and you've aged together, sometimes you miss your youth, mm-hmm. you know, and you say, well, I, I just wish we could be as young and 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 free as we once were now we're burdened with responsibilities and we're not as fit as we used to be and i miss the good old days you know and then you learn of course how to be where you are and make the good new days but maybe that's jesus's comment to these churches you know i i just wasn't it better back before why did you let it grow lukewarm you know yeah and it's more written out of compassion, you know. Um, he he longs for the people he loves, but he also longs for their vitality. There, he misses them when they were better. Like like for their sake.
0: Yeah, I think so. The bottom line there is nobody's perfect, right? We all have different different tendencies and different leniencies towards these different churches. Just Trying to say, okay, this is this is the one that I am right now in this moment. And then following that up with, and Jesus loves you still. Right? You don't have to be a certain way or a certain color or a certain whatever for Jesus to love you. He just does. You don't have to earn it. Nobody deserves it. But he loves you still.
1: Well, who wants a relationship like the Laodicean church? Like, like you're a newlywed you want your home and your marriage to feel like it did when you were newlywed 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. Well, in some ways, that probably isn't possible. But there doesn't need to be an end to the sense of joy and wonder that comes from this special relationship called marriage. Mm-hmm. I have called my wife my bride for 33 years. And people go, "Oh, that's so sweet and everything. But I do it because I'm reminding myself, this is my bride. This is the bride of my youth. You know, yeah. this is the person that I was radically in love with then, and I'm still radically in love with today. Well, that's the kind of marriage that Jesus wants with the church. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want a marriage with the church, his bride, that is cold and lifeless and dull. Who would? I mean, people jump from one relationship to another all the time because they're not getting fed or something like that. But in reality, you know, marriage or any other meaningful relationship is built around a mutuality and a selflessness that puts trust in the other party that says, you know what, I'm going to trust you to care for me and you can trust me to care for you and that means we're going to be okay because we're stronger together than we are apart Mm. and jesus is basically saying the same thing in his seven letters as you know it works better when we're together but there's a story well i shouldn't say a story but there are numerous stories in the bible especially throughout the old testament of people who walked very closely with god were very dependent on god And then when things were going smoothly, they just sort of neglected their relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And then when testing came, they forgot that it was God who delivered them the last time. So they forgot and therefore tried to fix their problems their own way. And then God says, well, guess you don't need me anymore. See ya. Right? And this is pretty much what happens in the Old Testament over and over again after David's kingdom is established. So, you know, the patterns of the Old Testament, there's an old saying, by the way, that that, uh, the Old Testament is Christ concealed and the New Testament is Christ revealed. That you see the same patterns. And so a lot of what Jesus is describing in the seven letters is stuff that was happening consistently in the kingdom of Israel and and, uh, uh, the relationship they had with God. In the Old Testament, it just had one big difference was there was an absence of the the unconditional forgiveness, you know. Things were conditional back in the Old Testament, and now it's unconditional, thank God.
0: Right, literally, thank God, yeah. So if you'd like to continue this conversation, feel free to send Pastor Dan an email or send us a comment or something like that. Um, this is an awesome topic, and I would encourage you to do this discipleship pathway. It was really great for me, um, and I think it's a great step in your journey. And if for some reason you don't go to Shiloh and you found our podcast somehow, some way, don't know how, and you want to do this, reach out. Don't hesitate. You can still do it. It's not open to just Shiloh people. Sure. Um, and he'd be happy to to talk with you. I'm sure. I can volunteer you for that, right?
1: Well, we'll see. <laughs> No, I'd be glad to hear from you, and uh, we'll just work it out.
0: Cool. All right. Until next time.
1: God bless you.